so I'm still thinking about our wonderful journey and dinner um, and lunch with uh, the Archbishop, obviously Archbishop in uh, in San Francisco. Wasn't Rima. that wild? It was wonderful, actually. I really loved this guy, and I heard some always some comments about uh, when he commented some of uh, uh, either political or social issues were good. Yeah, I liked uh, I liked this guy very much. Very down to earth, very real. Yeah, I I felt the same actually. So it was very humble and and, and uh, interested in culture and music and so on. So it's good. That's all we can ask for, right, from our leaders. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If only uh, every leader on earth was so interested in culture and the arts. Oh, we would have probably a different world. There are over 31 million seconds in a year. How many of those precious seconds do you spend listening to music, binging the latest series, reading poetry, consuming art and media on a broader scale? In this series, I, Stefano Flavoni, am joined by the top artists of our time to discuss the method of our madness. As Miles Davis once said, don't play what's there, play what's not there. Imagine being at the top of your profession and then realizing your calling was leading you elsewhere. This is the story of Manfred Honeck, undisputedly one of the most prolific conductors I've ever had the pleasure of working with. He began his career in his home country of Austria, playing viola in the Vienna Philharmonic. Yeah, that Vienna Philharmonic. An orchestra which, by the way, his brother Reiner is still concertmaster of. Talk about a musical family. However, by the late 80s, Manfred began to desire a pivot into leading his colleagues from the podium. So, he began assisting Claudio Abbado with the Gustav Mahler Youth Orchestra, before taking off on a rapidly accelerating career, with a baton in his hand rather than a bow. A few things come to mind when I think of all the conversations we've had together the problems in society we as artists are in a position to help with, how to mediate tradition with the artistic needs of the present, 
and the role of spirituality in our lives. You see, Maestro Hanek and I both grew up in Catholic households and developed an immediate kinship over our shared experiences. In fact, the last time he was in San Francisco, I managed to put together a dinner between the two of us and San Francisco's Archbishop. And the three of us spent the better part of an evening in his residence at the cathedral over wonderful dinner and vino, discussing the role of the arts in society, what role personal faith and spirituality plays in devotion to any craft, whether it be the arts, business, politics, you name it, and the utmost importance of artistic education for all ages, all skill levels, all backgrounds. It also must be said that many of the wildest, most profound, most inspiring classical music recordings of the past decade have come from Maestro Hanek and the Pittsburgh Symphony. If you want a place to start, you could get a taste with their Grammy-winning Shostakovich V or Beethoven Eroica. But I think their greatest so far is actually their most recent Bruckner Nine. It's a piece that's powerful, meditative, frightening, raw, emotional, and Maestro Hanek and the Pittsburgh Symphony do it the most justice I've heard in a recording. Maestro Hanek is a gem of our profession, and it's a real honor to have him joining us. Let's, let's talk about the world right now. We're obviously in a really challenging place. How have you been, I mean, you've been with your family in Austria for most of the quarantine, I assume? Um, actually, yes, when the pandemic started in March, you know, so there was uh, the first lockdown in Austria and uh, all the concerts uh, were cancelled. In fact, I had prepared um, Fidelio um, in, in Theater and the Wien, which uh, is the theater where Beethoven himself uh, world premiered uh, Leonore, which was later on called Fidelio. So it was a very special production uh, directed by um, Christoph Waltz. And it should be the production uh, of the year for, uh, for the Beethoven year, because it's on the, on the place where Beethoven has uh, uh, performed uh, this opera and his only opera. So we rehearsed a lot of, and then the last week there was already rumors it might be a lockdown. So the director had uh, then um, immediately uh, uh, used uh, his, his wisdom and, and changed all the plans to make a video production and TV production out of that. So we had not a single um, uh, performance, but at least um, a video production, which is now also available um, as a DVD. So that was my first um, um, confrontation with uh, with the pandemic and of course there were some concerts um, cancelled but uh, one by one there were always uh, people um, uh, and, and, and institutions orchestra called me and asked whether I could approach at the DB project so I conducted Lehar because he celebrates the 50th um, anniversary of his uh, uh, death and uh, and then we have then um, as well, uh, um, uh, some projects in in uh, Salzburg uh, festival and and so on. So this I actually I could do really a lot of uh, wonderful um, uh, uh, weeks 
with different orchestra in Europe, unfortunately not in 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 United States, where um, it's very it was very difficult to get uh, uh, um, to play with audience, and still that's not possible to play um, for audience. Uh, but we know that it will be better, and it will come to um, um, uh, to an end. And also with the availability of the vaccine, I think this is a great chance and a really, really great hope for us all. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I mean, just this morning, uh, I had a phone call about possible more cancellations and retransition into you know smaller chamber video products. Um, it's forced us to be creative in a lot of different ways that we weren't used to this doing is, things exactly the same. Yes, yes, I, this is really true. And, and, and uh, fortunately, we could use the, the modern media and having uh, transmitted a lot of um, uh, smaller concerts without audience uh, that make uh, us also available, all the orchestras available for their own audience, which is really wonderful. And I must also say that every time when I worked with an orchestra in this time of pandemic, the musicians were so, so thankful to be able to play and to make music together. And, and this is something where we live for and um, we want to give this gift to the people. Now it's not the audience, but it is. Uh, there are a lot of people in the in the uh, media world who can join the um, uh, the art and the music making as well. And it is so beautiful to see uh, um, and to work with um, with the musicians in this time because I really feel uh, it comes through that uh, it's far away from routine, far away from uh, from just doing something by by uh, because you have to do it um it is is really great to see that the whole soul in this pandemic knowing we play now and on the stage we play now um in a special situation but we play music and we play for the audience and we exactly it's so beautiful to know bringing back the ritual exactly i mean it is this is one of the things which i really longing for also that we are um of course uh, thinking about how can we uh, return after the pandemic uh, um, uh, to the normality do we want to have the normality this is a question of, yeah, uh, which is exactly. actually is also enormous important uh, for us uh, what could can be changed what should be changed and what the, um, how does the um, the uh, audience react and patrons react on on that do they like to come back do they want to come back when when everything is completely secure uh, what about young people um, who have now nearly one year um, uh, no um, contact with any um, concert uh, atmosphere or, or feeling this is these are things which we certainly have to to face these questions um, but I'm really looking forward um, to the moment where we are uh, making music as long as as much as I love uh, uh, to be on stage and then have the um, a live transmission through the internet or TV or whatever it is um, but I really must admit that I miss uh, the audience in the hall and I learned it also from musicians we play of course everything 
try to be perfect and then we do everything and we know that many people can will listen to that but to feel musicians um, to feel people in the hall this is something I think uh, as I understand the musicians and the members of the audience they are really missing that and that's what you see um, also this um, um, the ritual uh, coming to a concert and and having an, a live experience seeing them and every note every phrase what you play what you play is already history but you are there and you are seeing this uh, life um, as a person you feel the temperature uh, you feel the wave you feel everything what what happens on the stage um, you cannot really um, um, exchange that with with the with the internet I know that but it's still a good thing you know please don't misunderstand me it's I think it's fantastic that we can do this but I I know that many 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 uh, people in the um, uh, who write to me and then calls me and, and musicians they all tell me the same and that will be this is something which I really learned from many 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 people they are eager they are longing for yes. uh, for for feeling for this feeling to exactly. be in the hall and hear a Beethoven Ninth Symphony um, this is something which which people and it makes me also it makes me also very hopeful because this is something what we can offer would now nobody can offer and that's also the reason why we still play on the um, on the on the stage uh, knowing that the Beethoven Ninth is now um, as a recording hundred thousand times in the uh, uh, in the world you know you can listen to every uh, type of recording but uh, to hear it one time live with uh, with 200 people or 250 people on the stage this is something uh, you cannot uh, have somewhere else than um, in the uh, in the hall absolutely that electricity yes and yeah so I want to actually go back. Uh, first off, I mean, talking about coming back to the ritual, the, the first thing that came to mind was actually, um, what is it? Frohe und dankbare Gefühle nach dem Sturm, right? The, the last movement oh, of the Pastorata. Yeah, six, yeah, seven, yes. The, the, the thankful feelings after the storm, right? Yes. But I want to go back on Beethoven, to Fidelio. So Fidelio is a work I adore. So for you to have had that experience and really work on this seminal anniversary production. First, I'm going to start. Uh, I'm a huge Christoph Waltz fan. I'm a, at least 10 years now, probably maybe 12, 13 years. Whenever I first saw him in a film, what was it like working with an actor turned director turned opera director uh, because I think it was what his second or third opera that he's worked on uh, that's true he had done Rosenkavalier and Falstaff to my knowledge and Fidelia was now the third production uh, I really enjoyed to work with Christoph Waltz um, knowing that he's uh, a fantastic actor by the way I heard that he will um, play uh, Mikhail Gorbachev in the in the um, in the next film which which will be produced i think in the next year with cold war where they play uh, uh, the situation 
um, with, with uh, Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev. So he will play the Gorbachev. And, uh, so, um, but he was, uh, I must say, um, the expectation was very high and he really fulfilled all my uh, expectation, what I had to him. Um, first of all, he was a wonderful human to work with. He understood the human uh, feelings. He understood what what you need in the situation, um, and uh, he was wonderful to work with before the production started. So he was always very happy if I called him and talked about certain issues in Fidelio and how to create um, uh, the story, how it, you do I see the different roles, and. Um, um, and then, of course, uh, it is uh, for me clear when I saw him working with the uh, singers um, that he uh, uh, watched every movement, um, every finger, every arm, every expression in the face had to be in the right um, uh, way. You know, it, it was for him, for me, very clear. He, he himself had to um, to learn that and had to be very careful how to express some um, some emotions in the, in the moment and he also asked that for of, of all the singers and, and um, but also knowing that the uh, Fidelov is um, a very complicated opera it's it's not easy because uh, you know if, if the first act there is a, something to say but then, it's uh, in the second act is the big danger that it can turn into a concert, because yeah. there is not so much action anymore. And so and and uh, and I must say that he um, he had a a great great respect of of the music. He's very musical. He understood the phrases. He understood also that uh, to work in details. Uh, helps a lot um, to understand also the moment. Um, so every moment, what we, what I worked out musically, um, uh, he took over. And and the other thing, uh, the other way around, also when he, I saw how he thinks about certain um, emotions, that I also integrated um, that kind of emotion also into the music. So for me, it was a, a great understanding also of of. Uh, um, of, a, of a way to do um, opera if somebody understands the music and for me it's also great to have a, a, a director who is well respected um, but also understand what uh, what's going on in in um, in, um, uh, in uh, behind the uh, notes behind the music what what wanted uh, Beethoven tell us through the music because it's so it's you can Easy, easily say, okay, this is a, a, a an opera about freedom, you know, and and, and 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 you can turn it to a political story, but um, it is actually a very very true story about about uh, feelings of 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 a, a woman who are who is looking for her husband who was prisoned and trusted in uh, for a long time, and you know. This is love. Love is the, is one of the words which I uh, what I believe is is uh, what Christoph Waltz 
um, turned into opera. So it's okay, political. Pizarro is a political person. It, he's a dictator. He's a murderer, actually. But um, but uh, the real thing is that uh, a woman, Leonori, um, um, uh, seeks for her husband, and this is something which which I think he had he he brought out really really wonderful, with small gestures, not uh, not big uh, um, showy um, elements, but with very clear message in the in the behavior. In the action, in the movements of, um, of of the body, he really looked very careful how to how how they have to um, uh, to walk and to to, to look and and, 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 and and to move. Um. Beautiful. I mean, that's that's the ideal situation when the director is working, sort of you're the second half, or you you two are working in tandem, like two sides of the same coin. Uh, but I completely agree regarding Fidelio because a lot of times people oversimplify it or they say things like Beethoven didn't know how to write for voice, which there are difficult things, you know, not so idiomatic things sometimes in choral writing, but Fidelio is so human and every character has so much depth. I mean, even Rocco, even Iacvino, you know, Marcellina even, you get uh, almost like the first act is a Johann Strauss kind of operetta and then it becomes a much bigger like you said uh, a display of love mm, that's uh, certainly true you know um, um, I also would say that it starts with a singspiel what we call in in, um, yeah. uh, in German uh, and uh, as you know production of Serail is a singspiel for example, from Mozart, and it's a play uh, more than than an opera. But the more um, the uh, the opera uh, goes on, the more it turns into a very serious opera. And, and exactly. that is, that's something which he certainly learned also from from Mozart. He, I know that uh, looking on the score, especially in the parts of Marcellina, for example, that he really. Um, um, studied um, uh, Mozart's opera very, very carefully. He took uh, some elements out, and that's of course. Then, if it starts a little bit kind of with a with a story, you know, I love uh, Leonore, you know, Marcellina, uh, uh, and, and then somehow uh, it, it turns in into uh, till the till Leonore. Um, comes on stage, and then Pizarro, and more and more, you the characters come on stage, which are destroy actually this singspiel, uh, the play, you know, this gets more and more serious and also more deeper. And it's completely right what you say that Beethoven, of course, um, challenged the voices. He was not uh, the most uh, easy composer for, for singer. In fact, when, um, when he when uh, the soprano and the alto late on uh, when he worked and composed the Beethoven Nines, they visited Beethoven and they asked for changes. And he said, no, he didn't make any compromise. Not a single note was changed. Um, so one of the singers, Caroline Unger, he called him the tyrant, tyrant of voices. And, uh, and he kept it the whole life through. And it's certainly not, not easy, but nowadays, 
with our the sync technique, uh, uh, we have fantastic singers who are uh, able um, uh, to uh, uh, to catch uh, the high notes and know how to save the power on on, the, on certain certain moments. But this first Leonora aria is something very very special, where she really um, uh, uh, um, uh, brings. Um, uh, out her uh, emotions about her love for um, for her husband, and um, it's comparable to the, uh, uh, the aria of the Countess in Figaro, for example. You know where the honesty mm -hmm. of the feeling is here, and so it, it goes on. You know exactly Borgia more and 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 Pizarro. You know if, if and the way he composed it, it, it could not be more brutal. And he he um, paints this music uh, very dramatic. So many sforzati are in the music here, and 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 I must say, um, it, it, if this this aria um, you cannot do, it, it should not sound beautiful. And it, so I always am uh, against of of having this uh, very polished. It must be cruel mm -hmm. it must be excuse me when i say it must be ugly because the uh, that when he decides to um uh, to kill floristan um this is one of the most ugliest moment in the uh, in, in the opera so the music must destroy the music must disturb you know to, uh, and that's uh, i think it one of is the one of the most dramatic areas um, um especially in the Viennese classic uh, was ever written. Um, so it's, it, it's for me, as you said, one of the most beautiful operas also in the end when, the, when everybody admires Leonore's courage and when uh, they um, sing about uh, the heroic element, but more singing about um, love and about peace in the, in the humans and and uh, refuse tyranny, refuse um, uh, dictators and so. On. I have also to say that uh, Beethoven has um, written three versions of, uh, let's say, Fidelio. The first mm -hmm. version was in um, 1805, and it was actually a disaster. It was not very. Um, were welcomed by the audience, and a year later, or let's say half a year later, in 1806, um, uh, he um, brought out uh, the second version. And 1814, he um, had um, the last version. And this, the last version, is the one we all uh, know because we think this is the right uh, version. But in fact. Um, the first two versions, they are much, much more closer to Mozart um, whenever the, uh, wherever the, the 1814 version, the last version, is uh, more real Beethoven, I would say, in, the, in, in this way. I love the, we, I have performed the 1806 version, and the reason for that is, um, obviously, he cleaned up um, the 1805 version. Knowing, and we have to know this, that uh, Beethoven has never composed an opera. So this is his first opera. Um, and it's clear that um, 
when um, even if you're a genie like Beethoven, you're sitting here, but the practical uh, elements he might have not always conceded in the first version. Um, uh, for example, when he had um, a long introduction of an aria and, uh, and, and, and the singer is standing around and did not do anything, you know, so mm -hmm. it, and so he shortened a lot of elements in the second version and, and I think it was very um, helpful also and he understood completely that um, that it must be a, a certain drive in the opera. It must be somehow uh, practical and, and and therefore I, I think the second version is, is really a really great version um, and, and beautiful to sing and might be not that difficult um, in for example, in Floristan's aria, the famous um, the beginning of the second act, um, um, like in the 1814 version, he had also reduced um, uh, the acts in the uh, 1805 version. There are three acts in the 1806. There are only two version, uh, two acts. And the Mozart comparison is really interesting because. The 1805, it was material he was using for Vestas Foya, right? That was a Schikanator play who wrote the libretto and starred in the original production of uh, Die Zauberflöte. So there is that secondary Mozart connection outside of just the music, too, to Fidelio and its history. Absolutely. And we have to know he was completely connected with all these people around in, um, uh, in, in, in Vienna. Of course, he knew Schikaneder. Unfortunately, Mozart died in 1791. You know, so so when he composed it, uh, 1804, 1805, uh, he was already th 13, 14 years um, dead. You know, so it's it's. Uh, but um, there is um, clear that uh, the Viennese loved Mozart's opera enormously. So it was, uh, of course, Salieri was was the very dominant in that in that regard, but all the specialists, they really were digging in at the Magic Flute and Figaro and Don Giovanni, and, and this was something very special, and, 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 and uh, Beethoven knew the scores very, 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 very clear, clearly. So the influence of Mozart and Schikaneda and the thinking up behind was, um, was also um, um, uh, 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 a great inspiration uh, for him um, that he typical um, and we have to know that Beethoven is always somebody who wants to shock and and totally. uh, and he's one of who always wants to go to the edge um, I just remember about um, a review when Beethoven in, in his earlier time um, when he made a tour like Mozart Vienna Prague, Dresden, Leipzig, Berlin. That was uh, uh, arranged by Lichtenberg and the same uh, aristocrat, Mr. Lichtenberg, um, he also arranged the same tour. And in Prague there was a review and saying um, Beethoven is a, he's a star, you know, everybody wanted to see him and, and he's, he, he, he plays so fast that it is not everything very clearly, but he plays a lot of surprising elements, always on the edge and fiery. 
But then he said in the end, somehow we, we miss the equalness. We miss somehow the elegance, um, the clarity. And then in the end he says, we miss Mozart. You know, mm. it's, it's somehow, it, he was a star and everybody wanted to, to know the new piece of, of Beethoven. Um, but there is a, if it, this is a little bit distinction, but that was by purpose. Beethoven really wanted not only to satisfy uh, the listeners, he only wanted to, um, to, to wake up, so to say. So when a dominant scepter chord is, there was always a sforzato with that. When, uh, when he changed the rhythm for a normal uh, rhythm, he put some, some accents on the wrong so to say, on the wrong time, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or some hemiolis, uh, hemiols, uh, so three against two, that you feel um, a little bit irritated rhythmically. And nowadays, we un don't understand that so much, but in that time was, um, was an element to shock people if you, if you play something out of, um, uh, of the normality uh, rhythmical, rhythmically. So he used all these tricks and uh, that made him so special. And uh, you have to notice also for Fidelio, he, he didn't want to use this, um, this uh, story just to, to satisfy people and, and they should be happy and then go home. He, that was not, he's never, that, that's not Beethoven's character. He always wanted to say something. He wanted to wake up and shock people. And, and I think he, he was very successful with that uh, in Beethoven, in Fidelius, um, 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 people certainly did not like it so much uh, in, in the beginning, so he was rather disappointed about that. And also we have to say that uh, in that time when it was performed there were the French troops and the, of, um, around fit, um, from Napoleon, they were in Vienna. So many aristocrats has um, uh, left the city uh, for the security, and, and so mm -hmm. it was not very uh, good time as well. But nevertheless, it was not a success. But 1814, that was much much better than everybody, and he was also much much uh, more uh, popular and, and famous in that time. And also much more musically mature too. It's a huge stylistic change in that in those years. Absolutely, that decade, mm -hmm. massive. So we talk about Beethoven shocking. You've between playing in Vienna Phil and Vienna Staatsoper and conducting the world over for the past couple of decades, you've done most of the greats. What music shocks you? the way Beethoven might have shocked his contemporaries. What music wakes you up? Um, you would actually be um, uh, surprised uh, when I tell you that um, music, which is very simple, um, shocks me because of the simpleness. And because mm -hmm. uh, it is somehow uh, 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 enormous beautiful to see when you seek for something special in the music you don't need to to use um, a big tam-tam uh, uh, a big drum or so to make noise and so this this is not shocking 
Eno, das, ähm, äh, das ein dissonant Akkord shock me anymore? No, it's not really. Um, but um, but I would say if I get touched and therefore shocked um, in a little bit through a, through the most simple music, which where every note is um, is on the right place, then I say I think this is something I want to hear all the time. For example. Um, um, Litany of the Fest aller Seel with a Litany of the Feast on All Souls from Franz Schubert. It's only three mm -hmm. minutes, only three minutes. Simple, as simple as you can be. But every note has a purpose. Every note is in the right place. And it shocks me in a, in a positive way <laughs> uh, uh, that somebody can do with his simpleness the best um, uh, out of it. And that's, that's something which I'm... Uh, really um, um, touched all the time. I would say that um, uh, when you come, when, I, when you conduct the Mala second um, and, and go to the end and how, how wonderful uh, Gustav Mahler has um, built up um, uh, the symphony till the ending, um, it's for me a masterpiece as, as, as well, but uh, would say Wozzeck from uh, uh, Alban Berg. Mm. Um, isn't it um, um, shocking when the kids, um, um, uh, 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 the kid is coming on stage and 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 and, and, and hip hop, hip hop, hip hop, you know, so, and Ringo, like, Ringo, Rosenkranz, exactly. Then and and where the innocent, the innocence. Um, in contrast to uh, to the drama, what uh, what happens uh, with Marie and and what, of course, this is shocking. Um, absolutely, this always touches me enormously, and how Ivan Beck was uh, able to uh, uh, put that in in the music. There are a lot of shocks, but if you ask for um, the real shock, this I think the simpleness in the music. This is something which I always want to mention. Um, um, I think for me it's it's number one. I would say. I very much agree uh, that economy of means, but I mean, listen. In August, I recorded the Schubert uh, Litanei myself with a singer, uh, among many other art songs. So I definitely agree with you. Uh, so I wanted to talk about another composer. We talked extensively about Beethoven and the extensive editions of Fidelio and Leonora by extension. Let's talk about another composer with a lot of edition questions, Anton Bruckner. So Bruckner famously, infamously has a million and a half different editions of all his pieces constant revisions that humility and always trying to improve and take the advice of others so i know you've recorded quite extensively of the bruckner catalog uh most recently that incredible bruckner nine last year wild recording thank you for that uh but how do you go about selecting which edition do you do you take the the study time to go through all the originals? Have you made that judgment? 
Of course, we have to do it. You know, we have to think what what is the best uh, re, uh, version, what and uh, what is the will of the composer in the end. You know, it does not mean that uh, the last version is the best one. You know, so it's um, for example when you talked about Beethoven, he could have destroyed the eighteen five and eighteen six version of. Um, of uh, Leonori and say the only 1814 version is the right version, you know. But he did not do it because there were a lot of great, great moments in it which he still uh, could um, accept as an alternative. The same is with Bruckner when uh, when we know that, um, and I'm I'm very much always like to. Um, experience the originality of, of a piece because when you compose a piece and we know that Bruckner was not the 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 the, the fastest uh, composer in the world you know he really took time for every phrase you know mm -hmm. sometimes he had uh, used uh, um, uh, a lot of years you know of eight nine years for a for a for a symphony. Um, um, and uh, that always means something because he wanted to stand behind every note, behind every phrase. Um, and but he composes in a situation where he really puts everything out of his heart in, into that. And then it comes to the first performance, and um, uh, as in, in Bruckner's case, it was unfortunately very often the case that um, he was not understood and the peace was not welcomed. So friends of him asked him uh, to make a revision and, and, and th thinking about to shorten or changing something. And he did it. Um, for example, the fourth symphony, you know, um, if, uh, this, um, if the, the, the third movement is a completely different movement now. Mm -hmm. So um, I personally always try to respect uh, Bruckner's will and the composer's will and if I feel that the last will uh, is very clear mentioned by Bruckner then I go for that. So and in that fourth symphony for example I go um, with his last version, the Novak version and um, because uh, this, if if he would wouldn't have composed or recomposed uh, this uh, third movement, then we we would not have this hunting music, which is one of the most sensational Bruckner's movement he ever has written. I think you know. Of course, um, the Jagd Thema. The Jagd Thema, and it is so so beautiful, and um, I think. Whenever and when you listen to the original, um, it's also good, but Bruckner knew this is a better movement. So the same is with the Ninth Symphony. Whenever in Ninth Symphony, there is no possibility of um, or having a, any revision because he died on the on the on the work on 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 this piece. So when you hear um, the recording of um, um, with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra of Bruckner Nine. Then you will hear um, also the Novak version. Um, there were some um, uh, attempts by um, friends of, of Bruckner to shorten the symphony and change, change some 
elements, um, uh, but that has had nothing to do with Bruckner himself. That has some, had something to do with the people who thought this is, this symphony is too long and, and uh, needs some 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 changes. Uh, but uh, this is the real um, uh, what I, the first three movements are uh, the movements how um, uh, Bruckner has uh, uh, composed it. So I decide from one symphony to the other which one which I uh, would uh, would take. But uh, so far I have always took uh, the, took always the last version. Mm -hmm. So it, it's quite interesting because the opinion on Bruckner is quite different in the U.S. versus in Europe, as you are well aware. And you're one of the few music directors in the U.S. There are a couple who are really, really pushing this as part of the repertoire. And I was just curious what your thoughts were on the American public's relationship with Bruckner compared to that of Europe, because like you, you know firsthand, it's quite different, the attitude. Well, I only can give one answer. Listen to him. Listen to his music. Then if you really listen, listen to his music very carefully, you will never get rid of him. Uh, this is something you will hear the secrets of, of, his, of his magic melodies and harmonies and power. Um, you will, if you listen very um, uh, continuously, uh, then it uh, then it happens. He's not one of the composer who are uh, make shows. This is not. He doesn't want to mm -hmm. have the, the connection with spirituality. Um, it makes him very special. Gustav Mahler has has actually the same. But Gustav Mahler had also a lot of um, um, in that time more modern um, influences. For example. Uh, using percussion instruments or using uh, um, uh, uh, cow bells, you know, uh, which uh, Bruckner never had, you know. So he used only a timpani, the maximum one beat of a cymbal in the seventh symphony, a triangle, only one time a harp in the eighth symphony, you know. He was he really saved and kept it uh, very traditional, but the um, I think um, uh, the honesty in his, his music, it is really sensational. It happened to me that I, um, that I had to, uh, to, to study or to hear um, in earlier times the, the, uh, his music more that, uh, times. And if it were two or three, two, three four times and listen to a symphony, then you really get into the secrets. And then you keep it a whole life. And uh, uh, this is something which I really would like to um, uh, to give the opportunity in Europe, but also in um, in America. Just let um, uh, let him be performed, and, and don't be afraid, you know, to uh, to, to to listen to his. Um, it's it's. It's gigantic um, uh, influence and emotional influence, and it, it always keeps you thinking about. It. But if you're looking for easiness, if you're looking for lightness, um, um, uh, let's say uh, um, um, like a, a Beethoven or uh, Mozart, and where where, it, uh, where it's very nice to to listen. Of course, this is um, this heavier music. We know that, you know? 
um, but um, it uh, if you can take it because uh, when you listen to the Ninth Symphony of, of Bruckner, you will hear a, in our recording, you will hear a lot of um, spiritual moments, but also a lot of folk music in the in, in this because because there's a big misunderstanding, and I, re and I probably take the opportunity to mention this also now. Because Bruckner was very often um, um, put in a corner of, um, oh, he was Catholic um, and he was an organist. So everything has to sound spiritual and everything has to sound uh, like an organ. He's a little boy from Linz. A little boy from Linz and Ansfelden, where he was uh, 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 living. Uh, but I think that um, that uh, what and people really forget this uh, uh, so much that that I personally sometimes a little bit annoyed about that that uh, that he was a very simple uh, musician. He played violas, mm -hmm. he played violin, he was singing, he was a choir master. In fact, before he really started composing. He was teaching, I and mean, then he was uh, playing in um, in weddings, yeah. in in some um, celebrations, and played this this uh, Lanna music, the the waltzes, the marches, the polkas, everything. He knew everything, exactly. and for me, it's no surprise that in 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 all the symphony you find that. So when you uh, as a conductor uh, work this out and understand the origins. Uh, um, why did he compose that and and play it in like in this way? Then uh, then you will probably um, have a, a little bit easier connection with with his music because you understand um, his music. Very, please don't misunderstand. There is a lot of spirituality, and the more it, it goes to the Ninth Symphony, uh, the more spirituality you will find it. But there's uh, a lot of. Uh, great characters. Johann Strauss could not do it. Have uh, could not compose that better. You know, you just have uh, mm -hmm. have to compose. Like in the Seventh Symphony, there is in the first movement, there is, and I really believe that's true, um, a Chardash, and Hungarian music in Brooklyn. Exactly. Exactly. There is a exactly. It's it's Hungarian music. But if you polish that and, and put this under the umbrella of a spiritual um, element, then I think it is, um, you will never understand that this is Hungarian music. So, Completely. and this is so important actually for, for me also, whether I come, uh, conduct this in America or in, in Europe, people should really get this kind of part of uh, Bruckner's life also. Um, they have the right to, to listen to it and to hear it. It's so funny you mentioned that excerpt in seven because I'm going through seven teaching it to my conducting students uh, this month. And one of the first things I told them was, OK, we're going to learn a lot of German and Austrian folk dance for the next month and uh, it will show up. And certain enough, it does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's always the problem in second themes, in inner movements where there's this, like you said, this over elegant quality that isn't genuine to the music there's it's it's got spunk it's got folk character um, 
it's the dialectic, right? It's the comparison, it's the juxtaposition with the really, truly spiritual moment. Absolutely. And but um, when you compare this with Gustav Mahler, you know, then you have, uh, you know, you understood, you, you know, that uh, Gustav Mahler was a student of, of Anton Bruckner, you know, so oh, and then uh, um, you have this in uh, Gustav Mahler's music, very obvious, uh, you know, and he is so to say in the succession of, of Anton Bruckner, but Bruckner has it already um, composed in a, in a certain way. And it's also the way how to play this um, um, Austrian music in the end, you know, uh, uh, how is it, um, is the, uh, is a waltz or landler, what kind of style of landler is it, you know, do you, um, do you give a certain freedom? There are some people who say Bruckner does not, does not allow any freedom. And I personally don't agree with that because um, the freedom, where does it, where does the key, uh, the freedom comes from? The freedom is not coming from because, uh, because of the note which are written. The freedom is coming out of the meaning of the music. And therefore mm -hmm. you have to understand where does it come and dance music and uh, let's say Austrian folks, they always have used some certain freedoms. You know, this is always something where, where you never be completely occupied with, uh, with the rhythm, how it, how it is written. If you do this, then you get a certain stiffness in, in, the, in the music. And that's one of the things which I think um, um, uh, Bruckner can be seen in, in a different way. You know, I, I try this with my recordings also to get uh, people to understand what it is. For example, in the fourth symphony, uh, the second theme, there is a uh, the bird Tsitsipe. He called it Tsitsipe. Exactly. If you know, he 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 exactly he imitates uh, the bird. Eh? So you can you can uh, play this or like a, da, 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 a little bit kind of light and, and like a, a, a joyful folk tune like bird uh, song, you know. And if, if, you, if you do these small details, then you get closer to that what uh, Bruckner had in mind and what, what he was real, you know. So he was a, 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 a composer from the countryside and he was an organist and he was very... Um, uh, strong uh, in his belief and, 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 and in his faith, eh? we know that. But he was also very, very uh, character. He loves to drink beer, he loved to drink the Wiener, to, to eat the Wiener Schnitzel. He was uh, really down to earth as well. Eh? And it's so funny, I mean, all of the stories we have of Bruckner, I mean, the famous one where Hans Richter was conducting his music and Bruckner comes up to him after the performance mm. and tries to tip him like a cabbie. Yes. Yes, there are a lot of stories and again about him that he was sometimes um, might be always a little bit naive in, in not in a naive in a sense of stupid. Uh, don't misunderstand me, but you can imagine um, having a certain uh, lifestyle in Upper Austria where people were had not this etiquette of be aristocrats and more peasants or like that. Then this guy comes to uh, comes to Vienna, um, where a lot of intellectuals are running around, and, and now uh, can he change? Um, it's it, it, it was impossible for him to change. So he was um, 
uh, regard it as a very um, sometimes a, 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 a person with a strange behavior, you know. Sometimes, you know, but um, but he had a fantastic and a good good soul, you know. Um, for example, he then um, there was a trial. Uh, uh, for murder, you know, and 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 he wanted to be part of the trial. And then, when uh, this murder was sentenced to death, he was he was asked that he he could be stay um, with him um, for the whole night and prayed for him. You know, can you imagine this story? This uh, that somebody would do it if you know this that he really. Um, was praying and and uh, and and, and for, uh, helping every human in the world. When you know this, then you know what what kind of passion he develops um, um, as as a, as a composer as well. Um, I would be happy if people would know this uh, kind of uh, character much much more. Not only just know that he that he was a strange person, might be. A strange person, but he somehow unlocked the secrets of the universe in his music. Absolutely. I mean, this, he was in his own world, and uh, and, and when you um, look on his score, every time when he writes feierlich, which means with celebrity, then something comes on. Then it's something mm -hmm. very special. And he was the one who was always thinking every day about um, the life after the death you know what what does it mean to me and 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 he, um, he was always looking for the secrets of, of human beings here he was never interested only to to, uh, to show uh, good music he wants to to tell us something um, through, um, through different eyes, he always had the view to the heaven, and that's what. Um, and I really strongly believe that that um, uh, Gustav Mahler learned from him very much. You know, compared to Richard Strauss, for example. You know, Richard Strauss was a more earthly composer, wonderful music, oh, for sure. uh, wonderful music. But uh, um, Richard Strauss was never. Uh, interested in um, in uh, sacred music in, the, in, the, in that sense, he was never interested in what happens um, um, after the death. You know what 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 is it? Even if um, even if he composed this um, death and transfiguration, you know, but um, the, the spiritual aspect was uh, was not so extreme dominant. It was here, but not so extreme dominant. Um, the other way around, it, in uh, in um, in Gustav Mahler's music, um, and I see uh, uh, Gustav Mahler much much more in this kind of spirituality. Of course, irony is, is always here, and parodic element is always here, but um, every symphony has also um, uh, a look uh, to the heaven, and that he learned from Bruckner. Bruckner's music is in in. In every every moment, or in, 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 not every moment, but every um, every symphony, you can clearly see um, where he's um, um, out of this world, where he uh, get lost in the world, so to say, where he's completely in a different um, atmosphere, in different, where he's really in the heaven. Yeah, exactly.
and I it might be it might have been Herbert Blomstedt who said um, you know Mahler is always searching for something always searching for something but Bruckner he's already there he's found what Mahler is searching for I think there's some sort of meditative aspect to Bruckner where you know Mahler is fantastic obviously uh, but it's this, there's almost a sense of like it's a succession of events, right? Uh, Bruckner, there's no events. It's a seed that's planted and everything sort of sprouts out organically from it. There is one word which I really, really, and I, uh, I really agree with, with, with Herbert Blomstedt. Um, Gustav Mahler struggles with the music a little mm -hmm. bit, you know, he fights for the element, he, like a human being, you know, that he has a lot of doubts. But let's let's also know that uh, Bruckner himself had also a lot of doubts. Of course, he was a very strong faith, but you hear in the music where you question something, you know, and where he, uh, for example, in the, in the, um, uh, in the end of the first movement in Ninth Symphony, where he already foresees um, the drama of the 20th century, in my opinion, you know. And he also have here um, created a music where, where you uh, throw into the, into the ears of, of the listeners, where they immediately think, oh, wow, this is something which, which, which is so strong and so, so deep um, in the drama that I that I personally have um, not thought about that, you know. So, but he, um, he, when I would say with Bruckner, is a lot of purpose there why I uh, wrote this, but he was very clearly struggling in um, also in combining uh, the emotions in, uh, uh, in in a certain way. So you might not hear this um uh, in a, in a, in a developing uh, way like in, like in um in Mahler's music he tells you he let Mahler's let you be part of the struggle uh, Bruckner um, avoids uh, that you be in part but he still have that struggle as well so i would say the every mm -hmm. development section in the in in Bruckner's music is, is has the same um uh, the same struggle um, as as Mahler had uh, might be certain in a certain um, uh, different uh, style, but it is still a struggle as well. You know? um, yeah, but this is this is the this is a different style, and then also by the way a different um, um, a period of, of of in the music history. You know, when Bruckner refers, I would say to Schubert, to Beethoven. Um, Mahler goes one step further, you know, he, Mahler is still a composer, in my opinion, you know, who very strongly um, looks to the, very strongly to the second Viennese school, you know, so, um, um, yeah, so this is, is for me the, um, a clear, um, clear message by um, Bruckner, yes, it is here, he is in the heaven, it, everything is like a block, um, um, whenever Mahler's music um, is somehow a process uh, and, and, and a searching process, I agree with that very much. 
So now I want to shift gears a little bit. So let's talk about another part of your life, arranging, because you've done really wonderful arrangements of opera suites. And I just wanted to know what your process was like for Elektra, for Yenufa. The list goes on. I mean, Rusalka, the fantasy. What's your process in approaching condensing a three, four hour opera down to a 30, 20 minute suite? Oh, that's it's a very simple answer because the music is so fantastic. I wanted to bring this music in the, in the concert hall. You know, and uh, it came to my mind, I still remember when I was playing uh, um, Rusalka in the Vienna Staatsoper. And I was so impressed by the music and, and at the same time was searching, where is there anything we could use for the, um, uh, for the concert hall? Now, uh, I forgot it a long time, uh, but uh, it always kept in my mind. This music is so good and no concert audience can hear except the, the song to the moon, of course. This is something very famous, mm -hmm. but, um, but the, the, the the hundreds of other melodies are um, only to be heard in the opera. So that that, that was actually my uh, my the, the the only reason why I wanted to bring uh, this uh, music into a, 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 to make make a, 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 a arrangement of a, a suite. So the first was Yenufa, and uh, then. Uh, um, Electra, all of these operas who had no suites, I tried to make some, but I didn't want to uh, just to play um, um, or compose, uh, arrange them um, out of this music, which uh, the overtures or intermezzi, which the composer has anyway written for the orchestra alone, but I wanted um, also um, to. Um, to give a little bit of um, a, a feeling what what kind of story the opera tells you. So in Rusalka, you will hear Vodnik's voice, you know, you hear, of course, um, Rusalka's uh, song. Uh, uh, the biggest challenge for us and uh, for me was actually um, to replace the, the, the voices. You know, how do you do it? Mm -hmm. And um, and I was actually very surprised that uh, that we that we don't really need it. We, um, uh, of course, please don't misunderstand me. Every um, arrangement can never replace the real opera. This is clear. Of course, you know this is this is clear. Yeah? Uh, but the music is so strong that you, without knowing the opera, that you are longing to hear the original. And at every time it happens, Lectress is, for example, is for me the most, um, the most dramatic opera um, in the beginning of the 20th century. Oh, it's so you fantastic! Know, it it is it, so symphonic, and I was wondering why did Richard, why didn't Richard Strauss compose uh, make an arrangement? He did uh, he did of uh, Salome, um, uh, he did for Rosenkavalier. But not from, uh, but not from the most uh, symphonic opera, the Electra. So he might th thought that um, that the tone of the music is too dramatic and it doesn't appeal to the people mm -hmm. to to uh, to hear it in the in the in the concert hall. But um, I made the experience that um, 
that people really love this music in the, to hear in the concert hall. They hear it because they concentrate on the music. So my next opera is um, uh, will be Turandot, which uh, where wow. I have where I have already um, uh, made the uh, arrangement. But because of the copyrights, I'm, I will bring it out a little bit later. But this is, um, gotcha. uh, and you will be surprised how fantastic music um, is. It's so much influenced by by Stravinsky and by French oh, composers. Yes. I, I'm uh, very, very much looking forward to present this suite of Turandot. It, and, and you see, um, there is no... Um, um, a, a suite of um, of Electra, no suite of Rosalka but Borjak, and no suite of, of uh, Turandot. So this is something where I want to to um, might be to add to the con the normal concept repertoire, and people more and more ask for that, which is wonderful to to, to know. Yeah, it's so interesting with Turandot and all of them. Every time I go back to Puccini, there's always so many gems. I mean, the orchestration is ridiculously fantastic. Mm. I, his understanding of the orchestra at the early 20th century, of, of all his contemporaries of the sort of Verismo school of opera, it's insanity how good it is. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. And it's it very much also... Um, uh, misunderstood, you know. And, yes. You know, I was as as um, uh, assistant of Claudio Abado, for example, and Claudio, um, what a great conductor, and, and he really loved Verdi, but he never touched uh, Puccini, or very seldom touched Puccini, and and this is somehow um, he saw Puccini probably as a little bit kind of kitschy, and and you know so, but. When you look on the orchestration, um, it is um, it is really, really, as you said, uh, magic, you know, of, uh, and calculated and and so rich in the and so symptomatic for the style of the beginning of the twentieth century. It's, I, I'm I'm a big fan of Verdi, of course, and then but also of, of Puccini, and and it's, uh, they are. What, what great composers they have in Italy. Oh, it's, it's incredible. The one opera I always tell people to start with with Puccini is not La Bohème. Because, it, you know, everybody always comes to Puccini the first time through either Bohème or Butterfly. Uh, I think Suor Angelica is... Oh, yeah. That is the opera. That is the masterpiece among all of Absolutely. them. Absolutely. I love this. And then fortunately, we have this... Uh, uh, wonderful orchestral uh, Vorspiel, you know, and the intermezzi. Yeah. It's a uh, wonderful music. I think the whole Tritico is is um, is um, magic. You know? Oh, it's, it's brilliant! It's, it shows a masterpiece. And nothing against Tosca, you know, nothing against Turandot and and, uh, and Butterfly. But um, you're right. Uh, you would learn so much. And Manon, for example, also. Manon. What, uh, oh it's, it's, it's so so very rich and characteristic um, operas. Verismo in a pure sense. Exactly. Exactly. One last question for you. When's the last time you picked up your viola and played some chamber music? This is wonderful that you ask this because I did it just two days ago. 
get out and with your family. With my family, and the reason is my son uh, uh, brought me my viola, who was in Vienna, because I live outside um, uh, of Vienna. He brought me the viola, and I played with uh, my kids and with my grandchild um, some Christmas um, songs, and um, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It didn't sound like I would like to uh, have sound like 30, 40 years ago. Hey, come on. <laughs> but it was, it was beautiful uh, <clears throat> to be back. Um, and uh, with, with the instrument, I was um, in the Vienna Philharmonic um, playing uh, for eight years. Now I do it with my grandchildren, and uh, this is was a, this was a magic moment, I must say. Thanks for this question. Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. That's that's fantastic. Uh, was Rainer playing with you guys as well? No, he's he's living in Vienna. I live seven hundred okay. uh, uh, kilometer west of of Vienna, ah. so it's too far away to just to 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 meet for a for an afternoon. Of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. But it's so important. Chamber music, it's the reason why we all got into this. Oh, yes. It's wonderful. And, and to, uh, to connect with a person and, and to react on, on, on musical emotions so close by, this is something sensational. I think everybody, I think, who have the possibility to play, whether it's piano or singing, uh, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's, uh, I think we should all do it. It really inspires us and helps us to go with hope and joy through them um, through the life definitely well my friend this has been such a pleasure thank you so much thank you and i wish all the best to you and to your listeners Join us next week as we continue to uncover what's not there.